Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on The Agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Alexander the Great, who was, of course, as you probably know, one of the greatest conquerors the world has ever seen. Um, in 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 doing this episode, we are actually we're starting something a little different with half-assed history. I've I've made a decision here. I've, I've I'm finding it quite difficult to to get across new, um, silly or funny or otherwise, you know, very entertaining topics each week. Um, the fact of the matter is, quite honestly, there aren't just many stories that we haven't already covered. Um, it's been quite exhausting to try to find episode ideas where there just aren't any. You know, there, there, there's a lot of the silly or or, or you know, funny topics we've we've either already covered or they're they're too short and 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 won't fill a a full length episode. However, over the years, I've had many people write in asking to hear about more, I guess, for want of a better term, mainstream political topics or figures or events. You know, the 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 people that everyone has heard of, but maybe don't know the full story behind, and so. For at least the next couple of weeks, we'll see how it goes, I'll be getting across people like Alexander the Great, well-known figures or events or topics from history that we've all heard of, right? And in the past, I, I, I kind of dismissed doing this as, a, as an idea, one, because, you know, it's not, it's not really funny, um, but two, because I always thought it'd be too difficult to do an episode on such, you know, a vast and, and well-documented topic, given the sheer amount of detail that you can go into when talking about someone as famous as Alexander. You know, after all, if if you cast your mind back, we've done one single entire episode on one single battle that Alexander fought. So, you, you know, you can go pretty deep on, on famous figures like him. So as a result, because otherwise I think these episodes were just you know, spiral out of control in terms of length. Um, I've decided these episodes are going to be a bit more of an overview, not necessarily an in-depth look at these topics, but enough to bring you up to speed on the general deal of whoever, or, you know, whoever or whatever we're talking about. Enough so, you know, if you're at a, if you're having a conversation with a mate or something like that, you'll have all the information you know to, to sound very, very smart without actually weighing ourselves down with you know all the individual details. So, you know, we'll talk about. Who was Alexander? What did he do? What was he like? You're going to know the answer to these all these questions by the end of the podcast, even if you don't know exactly what the formations of the armies were when he won the decisive battle of Galgamela uh, in, uh, in in 331 BCE. And look, I know this is a bit of a shift for the show, um, and I want to assure you as well, it's not the end of you know bits of silly history. I think I might do some more short story format type episodes rather than you know just one every two years. But for now, just to make sure the podcast comes out every week and that I stop struggling to trawl through episode ideas that, you know, really, I really struggle to put together, we're going to spend some time bringing people up to speed on legendarily famous figures from history. You know, the people we've all heard of, Napoleon, Shakespeare, Socrates, Da Vinci, Darwin, Einstein, Charlemagne, Newton, Julius Caesar. You know, these are the sorts of people we're going to get across. And today, it's Alexander the Great, the man who conquered the lands from Greece to Egypt to India. He built one of the largest empires in history. He caused a world-changing cultural shift across the eastern Mediterranean into Persia. And this bloke never 
lost a battle. He led an army across the known world to victory and glory. He cemented his place as one of the greatest conquerors ever to have lived. He is a fascinating figure, a man of contradictions, stubborn and hot-headed and impulsive, but also at the same time, keenly intelligent, disciplined, calculating. And his legacy has shaped the history of much of the world. Even today, cities like Alexandria still bear his name. And, you know, while I talked about the fact that you know, these episodes maybe aren't going to be as silly or as funny um, as, as as some other ones that you might might be used to listening to this podcast. I mean, there is the time that Alexander got pissed and chucked an apple at one of his uh, general's heads and then deciding that wasn't enough, picked up a javelin and threw that at him as well, killing him. So, you know, there might be a, there might be a little treat here or there for people to enjoy as we get it stuck in. But anyway, let's get across who this bloke Alexander was, what we what we what he was all about. The story of Alexander III of Macedon, better known to history, of course, as Alexander the Great. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the year 356 BCE. So remember, for this episode, uh, seeing as we're before the Common Era, we'll be counting years down, not up. Regular listeners will be sick of hearing it by now, but just keep in mind today, year numbers get smaller as time goes on, with the year 355 coming after the year 356, not, not the other way around. Anyway... It was back in 356 BC on the 20th or the 21st of July, the same day as the Temple of Artemis was burned down by Herostratus, episode 111, get across it, uh, that young Alexander was born. Not not Alexander the Great, not even yet Alexander III of Macedon, as he would would be known. He was just Alexander, the son of King Philip II of Macedon and one of his seven wives, a woman named Olympias. And uh, look, Philip II of Macedon, a remarkable leader in his own right, but these days, obviously, his memory sort of pales in comparison to his sons. Uh, But but Philip, pretty effective king. He united and developed the rather weak kingdom that he inherited and turned it into a strong and, and quite powerful nation. Macedon unlike other Greek realms, uh, it was a monarchy rather than a city-state, and it had a reputation within the Greek world as something of a something of a, a backwards and, and quite barbaric place. I mean, you know, sure, the Macedonians spoke Greek, sort of, but to the Athenians and all the other Greeks further south, the Macedonians were, well, they were more or less perceived as sort of slack-jawed yokels, to be honest, and that would change, obviously, with the rise of Alexander, but, but at the time of his birth, Macedon had only really just just been pulled together properly by his old man Philip II and his newly reorganised, disciplined and highly trained army. Philip conquered much of the area around Macedon and expanded Macedon's territory across across much of what is today uh, northwestern Greece and southern North Macedonia. And this is what set the stage for Alexander. His dad was a very successful king, well and truly worthy of his own place in history, but obviously ultimately eclipsed, eclipsed by his son. And I'm sure Philip would have been very proud indeed to see what Alexander achieved and to learn of his position as one of the most famous figures in Western history. Philip did everything he could to groom his son for leadership, training him from a young age in the arts of warfare, uh, not just as a leader, but actually as a soldier as well. Young, young Alexander was, fought, he was taught to fight and ride and march, just as he was taught to lead and plan and strategize. And the story goes that at the age of just 11 or 12, Alexander tamed an untamable horse named Bucephalus, who would go on to accompany Alexander as he conquered most of his known world. But it went further than this. Went further than just his military prowess. Philip wanted his son to be a cultured king, right? Someone who was was well-educated, one with an appreciation of music and the arts. And so he was taught not just to read and write, but also to play the lyre. And in his early teens, Alexander, as you may know, was tutored by none other than 
Aristotle himself. As you may know, Aristotle was taught by Plato, who in turn was taught by Socrates, the you know, who is broadly considered the founder of Western philosophy. So Alexander's education really was uh, really was second to none. And finally, on top of his education, both his mother and his father instilled in this young man a sense of ambition to the point that you know, to the point that they were sort of instilling a sense of of, of deep unquenchable ambition. His mother in particular uh, made it clear to Alexander that he was destined for great things, and his father was more than happy to encourage this idea. And so Alexander grew up with a a very strongly uh, cemented sense that he would go on to do incredible things with his life, and of course he certainly did. By the time he was 18, he was already out and about fighting battles for his old man on behalf of Macedon and displaying an incredible amount of military skill. Uh, his first outing, uh, his first major outing militarily was when he fought in the Battle of Chaerona in 338 BCE, where the Macedonians faced off against the city-state of Thebes and their Athenian allies to the south. Now, Alexander had command of one of the wings of the Macedonian army, and I tell you what, I hope those Thebans and, and, and the Athenians were hungry because our mate Alexander fed them their own teeth. It was a huge victory. The Macedonians suffered around one-tenth the casualties of their enemies, so they really came off, uh, you know, pretty bloody well. It went, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad day in the office for the Macedonians there. And, I mean, not only was it, uh, you know, a monumental victory for the Macedonians, well done you, it was also an extremely important turning point in history more broadly. Because, after the battle, most of the southern Greek city-states who were, you know, now clearly unable to resist the newfound power of Macedon under Philip II, they accepted Macedonian dominance. They really didn't have anything in the way, they didn't have anything to stand in the way of, of further Macedonian conquest, and so they capitulated. They were forced to add their support to, to Philip and his realm and uh, uh, effectively accept Macedonian dominance over most of, uh, I say most of Greek, it wasn't, it wasn't it wasn't all the Greek city-states, it wasn't all of Greece, because there were some areas like Sparta who held out against the new Macedonian overlords. But for the most part, the Greek world was forced to add their support to Philip and his next military campaign. And this was a war against, can you guess, the Persian Empire. It's been a hundred years or so since the battles of Salamis and Plataea, episode 186, get across it. But the Persians are still hanging about like a bad smell as neighbours to the Greeks. And Philip has been keen to go on the offensive against them for years and years. He's been eyeing them off and he's keen as anything to get stuck in and feed them the left and the right and see if he can, you know, take back some of the territory across the other side of the Aegean that used to belong to Greece. So, with his victory at the Battle of Chaeronia, he now has the support of most of the rest of the Greek world who are unable to resist the military might of the Macedonians, and so therefore he begins to draw up plans for a full-scale attack and invasion on the Persian Empire in Anatolia, in modern-day Turkey. However, Philip wasn't able to undertake this planned campaign against the Persians for the very simple reason that he was bloody assassinated, mate. In 336, Philip was assassinated by one of his bodyguards, so... I mean, you had one job, mate. You had one job, and not only did you fail to protect him, you also were the reason that he bloody died. So that, I mean, I can't imagine what the next job interview for that bodyguard would have been. Oh, what? So what? Why did you leave the, your last position? Oh, mate, you know, just um, <clears throat> disagreement with the disagreement with the boss, just looking for new opportunities. You know. Anyway, we don't know exactly 
why this bodyguard uh, assassinated Philip. There, there are all sorts. You can you can look into it yourself. There, there's all sorts of different reasons, and none of it has been particularly conclusively proven. But it's safe to say that whatever the reason, the fact that Philip was killed. His premature death changed the course of history forever because it meant that at the age of just 20, Alexander took the Macedonian throne as Alexander III of Macedon, and he used his new position to, as you know, conquer most of his known world. Would Philip have been able to do this? Would he have wanted to do this, given his aims for a war against Persia mainly involved pushing them out of Anatolia? Given the effects of Alexander pushing as far east as India and conquering places like Egypt, you know, had Philip lived, if he'd waged this campaign and stopped in Anatolia and called a day, well, the world might have looked very different. But he didn't. He was killed. And so his son became king in 336, just 20 years old, as I mentioned. And the course of world history veered off down the path that's led us to today. And I'll tell you what. Alexander didn't waste time. He picked, uh, he picked straight up where his old man left off. He prepared for this invasion of the Persian Empire and he was ready to get stuck straight into it. In 334, Alexander had gathered an army of almost 50,000 troops. Over 5,000 of these troops were mounted and he marched into Anatolia, which was then, of course, controlled by the Persian Achaemenid Empire, the same empire that we talked about in episodes 184 to 186. And, uh, well, you know, look, get used to this. He absolutely wiped the floor with them. Absolutely wiped the floor with the Persians. Let me tell you, he conquered city after city as he, as he drove the Persians before him. While the Greek world had held on to islands across the Aegean Sea, they had lost their colonies in mainland Anatolia. But cities there like Sardis, Ephesus, Halicarnassus, these were still culturally Greek in many ways. There were Greek populations and Greek culture. They spoke Greek still in many of these cities. So from Alexander's perspective, him blazing through this part of what was controlled by the Persian Empire. From his perspective, he was liberating these cities. He was returning them to the Greek world where they rightfully belonged. And uh, he did a good bloody job of it too. His conquest continued. He seized Persian-controlled coastal cities to cut them off from the water of the Aegean Sea before then finally heading inland, where famously, of course, you've probably heard this story, in the city of Gordian, Alexander came across the Gordian Knot, a complicated knot that tied an ox cart to a post. Now, legend held that anyone who could untie the knot would become the king of all Asia. And so Alexander, hearing this, he goes, well, I'll tell you what, I bet I can bloody get that knot undone, no worries at all, goes up to the knot, struggles with it for a while, can't get it undone. And so instead, drew his sword and sliced the knot in two. And he turned around to the you know the crowd who was watching him and go well what it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how the knot was undone just that it was indeed undone and you know so I've done it king of Asia here I come even today we refer to people solving problems in unexpected or unorthodox ways as cutting a Gordian knot and this saying is what look you know over two thousand years old it goes back to this very well documented event that took place when Alexander took a well you know a very novel approach used a bit of lateral thinking to pro- to solve an otherwise uh, intractable problem anyway. Alexander is continuing to conquer his way across Achaemenid land, having a great time, and uh, obviously the Persians, they're not, they're not going to put up with this. The Persian emperor himself, Darius III, he goes, I've had enough of this. Uh, this who's this bloody kid? Who does he think he is? Coming through my land, kicking people out, absolutely not. I've had a gutful of it. He raised and then personally led a massive army 
to take the fight to Alexander. This Persian army significantly out. I'm, I've just realized, like, I'm doing a big thing where it's like, oh, this huge big Persian army that he's raised. Oh, what's going to happen? I mean, I've already told you didn't lose a battle. So, I mean, I've kind of spoiled it here. Yes, Darius got together a huge army. Some accounts say it was over 200,000 men strong, although probably less than that. But Darius III, I mean, look, I'd, what can I say? And his pants pulled down. At the Battle of Issus in 333 BCE, he, Alexander absolutely he gave, him, he gave him an absolute hiding, mate. It, despite the fact that the Persians had an overwhelming numerical advantage, Alexander, his, his grasp of military strategy and tactics was just was, was on another level, and he was able to, uh, to crush the Persians and drive them before him. And uh, this... Victory at Issus gave Alexander effective control over Western Anatolia as, as Darius surrendered all the lands that he had lost so far. And from there, Alexander, I mean, again, get used to me saying this, continued his conquest, this time further south. He pushed out of Anatolia along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean into modern-day Syria and Lebanon. And he didn't slow down. Let me tell you this. He went, he went about capturing and, in some case, sacking cities that had been controlled by the Persians. And, um, I mean, look, Alexander could be he could be pretty bloody merciless and brutal when he wanted to be. Uh, some of these cities, again, without, without huge Greek populations and whatever else, they were not spared the fire and the sword of Alexander's army. Uh, and nowhere was this more uh, apparent than in his siege of Tyre. And we've already talked about the siege of Tyre, episode 60, get across it. I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but after capturing the cities of Baalbek and Sidon, he marched to Tyre, might be Sidon actually, I don't know, anyway, he marched to Tyre, uh, which was at this point in history, for those of you you'll remember from episode 60, at this point it was an island, it wasn't connected to the coast. So in order to capture it, Alexander had his men build a kilometre-long causeway out to this island, which allowed him to storm storm the, the city with a huge number of, with an overwhelming force of men, take the city, and then, you know, this is where it gets nasty, he then massacred every grown man and sold all the women and children into slavery. So, you know, he could definitely be ruthless and, uh, and bloodthirsty when it suited him. But after taking control of the Levant, Alexander, he continued. He didn't slow down once again. He continued his march south, this time towards Egypt, which was, again, another possession of the Persian Empire. And his army are loving it. They are in great spirits. They enjoy terrific morale. He hasn't lost a battle yet, despite often being outnumbered. And what's more, his soldiers are all fiercely fiercely loyal to him. Alexander, he fought side by side with his men. He led charges against the enemy enemy personally. And even when he wasn't fighting, he mingled freely amongst his troops. And, and this combined with the fact that he could just not stop winning battles, it meant that his troops were more than happy to follow him anywhere and everywhere. The fact that Alexander rode into battle, led the men himself, fought fought alongside them shoulder to shoulder, and then afterwards, when they're hanging out, chilling out, or on their way somewhere, he'd, he'd you know, sink back jars of wine with them as well, chill out and have a good time. He he was beloved by the men he was leading, and this and this this fierce loyalty, as I said, it inspired them to, to follow him to the ends of the earth, which is, you know, very, very much what uh, what happened. But for, for the time being here, they're following, following him south to Egypt. In 332 BCE, this is where his conquest continued. And it has to be said in Egypt, it continued without all that much resistance. 
Egypt capitulated to Alexander pretty readily. This is an area that was sort of on the outskirts of the of the Persian Empire. The Persian control over Egypt wasn't as ironclad as it was in some other areas, and so Egypt kind of just fell over. Like, yep, yeah, sure, no worries, new pharaoh, don't even worry about it. Who what? One one's as good as the other, and they accepted. Alexander's rule without really batting an eyelid. Alexander crowned himself the pharaoh of Egypt in Memphis uh, and brought people on side. He brought his new Egyptian subjects on side by doing up temples and building monuments to gods. But these temples and these monuments were dedicated to Egyptian gods, not Greek gods. And, And this was one of the cornerstones of Alexander's success as a leader, one that his successors didn't pick up on after his death. While Alexander was absolutely ruthless in suppressing anything that threatened his rule, rebellions, revolts, or other malcontents, these people were dealt with swiftly and mercilessly. At no point, right, did Alexander attempt to force his language, his culture, his customs, or his traditions on the lands he conquered. In fact, it was usually the opposite. He would adopt the culture and the customs and the traditions of the lands that he conquered. He lent into the local culture of these uh, of these realms that he added to his empire and used this to bring conquered people on site. He ingratiated himself with his new subjects and encouraged his Greek followers to, to adopt and embrace and ingratiate themselves as well in the lands that they, uh, that they were marching through. And as long as people accepted his rule, as long as they supplied his troops, and as long as they didn't resist his authority, Alexander let people live by their own customs and ways, and he didn't upset the cultural apple carts of the places that he conquered. Instead, he stacked more bloody apples on top of them. Anyway, he didn't stay long in Egypt. He stayed long enough to crown himself pharaoh and draw up plans for a new Egyptian city on the northern coast, a city that, of course, still stands today, Alexandria. But... In 331, he was off again, off to uh, chasing down the horizon. The world's not going to conquer itself after all, is it? No, no, no. He's got to get, he's got to get after this bloody Persian Empire once again. So Alexander headed back into Mesopotamia, into the uh, into Achaemenid uh, Assyria, where Darius III was rallying his troops for another battle against Alexander, and this proved to be a bad move because at at the Battle of Gargamela, Alexander, can you guess? yes indeed, absolutely annihilated the Persian army. The Macedonians were outnumbered once again. The Persian army was perhaps as big as 120,000 troops, reliable historical sources indicate, uh, to Alexander's 47,000. And I say reliable historical sources because some slightly unreliable historical sources claim that the Persian army was 1 million men strong, but that is, I mean, you know, Not remotely plausible. Anyway, being outnumbered didn't matter to Alexander, as we know. He personally led his men into battle once again and absolutely crushed the Persians. His his manoeuvres, they required daring and discipline and, and perfect timing. But his troops, they pulled it off and they carried the day. They routed the Persians and they caused Darius to flee for his life once again. And so... With the the Persian army vanquished once more, there was no meaningful resistance to Alexander's continued advance. He captured the ancient city of Babylon. He marched on Susa, where a a vast Persian treasury was held, and he looted it like there was no tomorrow, sent a lot of the money back to to the Greek world, back to Macedonia. So people even back there are absolutely loving him because there are rivers of gold coming uh, coming back westward. But greater riches yet lay in store in the Persian city of Persepolis. This was the uh, the ceremonial capital of the Persian Empire in modern-day Iran. 
And so Alexander, with, you know, bloody dollar signs in his eyes, he, he headed off towards Persepolis. And uh, after arriving there, he let his soldiers loot the city freely as soon as they arrived. We've already talked about how much Alexander's troops loved him, and this can't have hurt at all. But um, I guess we could talk about another aspect of Alexander's personality at this point, one that really came to the fore in, uh, in, in Persepolis. Because at times, Alexander really could be a bit of a loose unit. In many respects, look, he was, he was clever, he was calculating, ruthlessly intelligent, quick to learn, eager to learn. And particularly when it came to, you know, military affairs, his mind was razor sharp and paired with a, a controlled and a, and a thoughtful intelligence. But then, on the other hand, in, uh, in other areas, he... Uh, well, look, I mean, look, he, he was a bit of a bloody loose unit. He really was. Alexander could be rash and impulsive. Uh, he had a fair few tickets on himself. As I say, both of his parents had instilled in him this, this you know, huge amount of ambition and destiny, and here he was fulfilling it. And uh, on top of his impulsiveness, on, uh, on top of his arrogance, this bloke also had quite a bloody temper. Uh, he, 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 could, he was very, very hot-tempered. He'd, he'd lose his cool at the drop of a hat. If, if someone said the wrong thing at the wrong time to him, he'd, he'd be as cross as a frog in a sock. And uh, the people in his inner circle sort of had to learn how to manage his moods and, and make sure that he wasn't. He wouldn't fly off into a rage uh, again if someone said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And what's more, we don't stop there. He also... Loved a drink. This bloke, he, he, I'll tell you what, he, while he wasn't too keen on, um, how do we put it, carnal pleasures, I guess you could say, he wasn't easily led around by the end of his willy. He bloody loved getting on the jars. He was an absolute booze hound. He, uh, he'd get on the sauce, and of course, this only endeared him to his men all the more, as he'd have big piss ups with them, have a bloody great time. But, uh, for example, in places like Persepolis, this fondness for sinking back cold ones got the better of him when he got pissed and decided to burn half the city down. It's still up for debate as to exactly what happened and why he did it. There are some theories that this was some sort of, uh, you know, recompense or revenge for the campaigns that the Persians had waged against the Greek world years and years ago. But whatever the case, several historical sources indicate that Alexander started a fire himself that burnt much of Persepolis down. He, and he did this while he was pissed out of his head. Then he woke up the next morning, obviously dusty as all hell, and regretted it. He ordered his men to put out the fire, but, I mean, the damage was done. I mean, you know, look, fair go. Fair go for him. We've all been there. You know, go out for a night in the beers, end up burning half a city to the ground. We've all been there. Anyway... He left the smoking ruins of Persepolis behind him after looting its treasury. Alexander, he continued east, and this time, of course, he was chasing Darius III, who had fled after the last battle. But his, uh, his pursuit of uh, the Persian emperor came to nothing. Darius was first taken prisoner and then assassinated by one of his own satraps in, uh, in the year 330, much to Alexander's displeasure, might I add. Might I add. He was not happy about having uh, lost the, uh, the chance to gain satisfaction for himself by vanquishing Darius by his own hand. But the silver lining to that particular cloud, it was the fact that he was now uncontested in his claim as the king of Asia. And just as he'd done in Egypt, he adopted some of the customs and the cultures of the Persians in order to bring his new subjects on side. However, this, I mean, the length to which he went, at least, this put 
his Greek followers offside. Many of them weren't happy with the fact that, for example, Alexander started to demand that people prostrate themselves before him, kiss his hand before speaking to him, which was very much a part of Persian culture, but it was seen by his Greek followers as deification. He was getting too big for his boots and people really didn't like it. So Alexander had to walk a fine line between bringing his eastern subjects into his realm while also retaining the loyalty of his western followers. And it didn't always work. Around this time, there were there was more than one plot hatched against Alexander's life by formerly loyal Greeks who saw him as betraying the Greek way of life with his adoption of eastern customs. Now, these plots were all foiled and some old companions of his who voiced their concerns with Alexander's new way of life, they paid the ultimate price for it. I mentioned he's got a temper and uh, there's one bloke, I alluded to this in the intro here, a, a fellow whose name was Cletus the Black, right? He was a commander of Alexander's cavalry. He'd saved Alexander's life during a battle back in 334. There'd been a Persian swordsman who had been standing over Alexander. His sword raised high, ready to split his head in two. And Cletus had come along, chopped off the Persian's arm, and therefore saved Alexander's life. And he'd been a commander for Philip II. He'd been around as a commander for Alexander as well. This bloke was, uh, you know, a long and an old and trusted advisor of uh, a trusted companion of Alexander's. However, it wasn't enough to save him from Alexander's wrath because Cletus one day, he's come, well, I mean, probably one night, to be honest, because they're both drinking. Alexander and Cletus, they're sinking back some wines. And Cletus says to him, listen, mate, Alex, look, you've got you to chill out with all the Persian stuff because all this, you know, the, the bowing, the scraping, the prostration, the kissing the hand, people, I mean, look, you look, honestly, mate, you look like a bit of a dickhead doing it. None of the, none of the, the rest of the Greek fellas, we're not keen on it. Honestly, mate, I, have to, I, hate, to, I hate to say it to you, but that's, the, that's, that's just the, the, that's the fact of the matter. And Alex goes, well, what do you mean, mate? Just bringing all the Persians on side, you know, a bit of local culture. Mate, read a book, why don't you? Anyway. Cletus, they're going back and forth. Cletus saying, listen, you really, you really got to calm down. I know a lot of the boys are really unhappy with what you're doing. And Alexander, who, you know, we've already established, can't necessarily hold his liquor. He's getting, he's getting very, he's getting, I'll tell you what, very, very unhappy about things. And so he picks up an apple and chucks it at Cletus's head, just like that. And you're sort of thinking, all right, well, yeah, okay, not so bad. And these, all the people who are off there are there as well, you know, on, on, on the jars. They, they jump in, they pull the two blokes apart, rip Alexander away from Cletus so he can't hurt him. But Alexander, I mean, he's a big, strong fella. He throws these people away from the, trying, to, trying to restrain him, picks up a javelin, chucks it straight at Cletus, and it goes through his bloody heart, mate. It killed him, just like that. Cletus the Black killed after saving Alexander's life for the crime of speaking his mind to Alexander the Great. So this bloke had a temper he couldn't control, and I'll tell you what, he couldn't, hold his, he couldn't hold his liquor very well at all. But still, in spite of, you know, the instances of resistance to Israel, the fact that some of his men were starting to get a little unhappy with some of his behaviour, Alexander the Great, he continued his campaign. <laughs> I'm getting sick of saying it, mate. He continued his eastward campaign, pushing onwards uh, through, uh, through modern-day Iran into modern-day Afghanistan, and... As he went, he both conquered and founded cities, and he named these cities Alexandria. Each and every single one of them was called Alexandria. By the time Alexander had finished, there were around 20 or so cities that he'd founded, and the vast majority of them, 17 or so, were called Alexandria, all the way from Egypt across to India. I mean, very confusing, you would have thought. I mean, you know, you sort of think, oh, well... Where's, uh, where's Alexander gone? What's he up to these days? Oh, mate, last I heard he was in Alexandria conquering people. I mean, that doesn't, doesn't really narrow it down, does it? Anyway, by 327 BCE, the Persian Empire, which is 
generally considered to have fallen with the death of Darius III in the year 330, was unquestionably, undeniably under the control of Alexander the Great. But even with his objective fulfilled, even with the Achaemenid Empire finally brought undone and his bum incontestably plonked down on its throne, this wasn't enough for Alexander. The horizon beckoned. There were yet more lands to conquer. And so Alexander continued his campaign eastward with his troops. In 327, he struck out to India, where he fought and won, of course, a series of battles against Indian rulers there. One such battle, the Battle of the Hydaspes in 326, saw Alexander go up against King Porus of Paurava in modern-day Pakistan. However, this victory wasn't an easy one. Alexander fought many battles. He did go undefeated in all 20 of them. However, the battle against Porus was a it was one that really put him to the test. Porus put up a hell of a fight and impressed Alexander with his skill on the battle uh, on the battlefield so much so that after the battle, Alexander invited Porus. Uh, he had, he had a, a, a personal reception for the conquered king and and asked Porus what he should do now. He, he seemed to be testing Porus to see what uh, what the conquered king would uh, would make of the situation. And Porus said, "Treat me as a king would a king." And so Alexander actually granted Porus control of lands that expanded his territory, on the condition, of course, that he became his vassal. Not a bad deal for Porus, really. The area that he ruled actually grew rather than shrank after he lost this battle. However, a sad day for Alexander, the Battle of Hydaspes. It was, I mean, it was a victory, of course, ultimately for him, but a sad day nonetheless because his horse, Bucephalus, is said to have been killed in this battle. He had ridden it all the way from Greece to Egypt to India, and uh, Bucephalus finally fell in the battle against King Porus. Although there are some that claim the horse went on to die of old age, we're not 100% sure, but broadly speaking, the consensus seems to be that Bucephalus finally fell at this battle there. And, uh, you know, look, whatever the case, Alexander named one of the cities uh, that he founded, one of these new cities. I mean, he named it Alexandria, obviously, but he named it more specifically Alexandria Bucephalus, a bit of a variation there for his, uh, his beloved old nag. One of the, one of the, 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 con- the cities that he, uh, that he founded in, in, this, in this conquered region actually bore his, uh, his dead horse's name. Anyway, once again, after moving into you know, this new part of the world, into India, Alexander didn't attempt to impress Greek culture on his new subjects. Rather, he encouraged the, the marriage of two separate cultures, leading to the absolutely fascinating world of Greco-Buddhism. Even after Alexander's death and the removal of direct Greek influences in this part of the world, Greco-Buddhist art and culture flourished for centuries, with everything from coins to statues bearing quite significant influence from both Greek and Buddhist cultures. Jump online, do yourself a favor, have a look. It is absolutely wild to see 2,000-year-old statues of Buddha done in a Greek style. Anyway, after this string of early successes in India, Alexander, of course, he was keen. He was keen to keep on keeping on. He wanted to push eastwards across the Ganges, keep taking down these Indian kingdoms. But at long last now, his troops had had enough. They had finally seen enough of conquest. And as loyal as they had been for so many years, as much as they had loved campaigning with him for so long, they would go no further. 
Try as he might, Alexander just he simply couldn't convince his troops to continue mar- marching eastwards. Even his commanders attempted to change his mind. They've all come to it and said, listen, mate, you've got to give it up. We've gone far enough. It's time to go back home. The boys are keen to get back, right? And they went up. I mean, these, these, these commanders, these, these advisors he had, they went up against his famous stubbornness, his famous temper, and worked ultimately to persuade him to return. And so at long last, after eight years conquering everything he set his eyes on, Alexander's campaigns finally came to an end. He split his army in two, he sent half at home by sea, and he marched the other half home to secure his borders and check in on the governors that he'd left in charge of the many lands that he'd conquered. And, oops, some of these governors had been up to no good, abusing their power, not ruling so well in his name, and Alexander promptly executed them all to send a very clear message. He also uh, further encouraged the integration of Greek and Persian culture on the way home, uh, and further encouraged the integration of Greek and, and Persian people. He merged military units, he ordered the marriages of Greeks and Persians to bring about greater cultural unity between the two people, and also he did things like rebuild the tomb of, of, of the Persian Cyrus the Great. He executed those who had been responsible for desecrating it and, and showed very clearly that within his empire, Persian culture, the Persian way of life was still very, very welcome. However, on the return journey to Macedon, tragedy struck. Alexander. I haven't talked too much about Alexander's personal relationships. He married three different women concurrently, as Macedonian custom allowed, uh, one for love and two for political reasons. But there is every reason to think that Alexander also didn't mind jumping into bed with other blokes as well as with women. And this is cast into sharp relief in the year 324 with the death of a fella named Hephaestion, right? Now, Hephaestion had been a lifelong friend to Alexander. They were roughly the same age. They'd been very, very close since they were kids. And Hephaestion had grown to become uh, a general and a bodyguard to Alexander. He was his second in command, his best friend, his confidant, and it's thought as well, his lover. The two of them were incredibly close and their relationship very probably went beyond just friendship. It seems that Macedonian culture was reasonably accept, accepting of homosexual relationships. And, you know, while, while a sexual relationship is never made explicit in any historical sources concerning the pair, they often compared themselves to Achilles and, and Patroclus. Uh, Hephaestion used the word, uh, used the epithet philoxandros, uh, with the, obviously the Greek word philos often meaning lover. And look, we may never know for certain, but there is a, there is a very good chance, in fact, that these two were indeed knocking boots. And that's certainly borne out by Alexander's response to Hephaestion's death. Hephaestion took ill while they were travelling through modern-day Iran, and he may have even been poisoned, but whatever the cause, he didn't recover, and sadly, he died. And Alexander was absolutely devastated, inconsolable with grief. And he took Hephaestion's cremated remains to Babylon. He stopped eating and drinking. He ordered public mourning. He prepared an enormous funeral for his late companion with all of this, these, uh, these, these opulent monument-like uh, preparations made for this uh, to, to honour the life of Hephaestion. And, and as part of the public mourning, I mean, this is getting a bit ridiculous, the manes and the tails of horses were cut off, music was banned from the streets, and by some accounts, the doctor who had looked after Hephaestion, who, you know, under whose watch he died, was executed. So... Uh, yeah, it's it's fair to say that Alexander was pretty bloody cut up about the whole thing. But after Hephaestion's death, Alexander remained in Babylon. And, I mean, 
It was never, never too far from his mind, was it? He began to think about his next conquests. His new invasion plans that he started to draw up involved uh, marching south this time into Arabia. But of course, these plans never came to light because Alexander actually never left Babylon. As on the, uh, the 10th or maybe the 11th of June, 323 BCE, less than a year after the death of Hephaestion, Alexander too died at the age of just 32. This man had conquered what he regarded as the known world. He ended the Persian Empire. He expanded his realm from Egypt to India. And he did it all at the age of just 32. But how did he die? There are a couple of different stories. All of them involve a a common thread. Alexander drank something, perhaps a big bowl of unmixed wine, and then fell ill and died around two weeks later. He may have been poisoned. He may have had typhoid fever. It may have even been malaria. We're not 100% sure. It might have even been the fact that he really just wasn't in good nick. After all, years of campaigning, plenty of wounds and injuries, and on top of that, you know, his entire life he'd spent drinking heavily. Alexander just might not have been in very good physical shape by the end of things. But look, whatever it was, and again, we don't know for sure, one of the greatest conquerors the world has ever seen passed away. And while on his deathbed, when asked who was to inherit his grand empire, he simply answered, the strongest. And what was, you know, a very poetic and rather simple answer actually instead led to decades of war and conflict amongst all of his generals who all, you know, fought like headless chooks to try to gain control of the vast empire that Alexander had forged. Uh, The Wars of the Diadochi, as they're known, saw Alexander's realm split amongst them as they all fought tooth and nail for their particular piece. Um, But these wars did lead to some pretty important things. For, For instance, I mean, we've already talked about Ptolemaic Egypt. Ptolemy founded Ptolemaic Egypt uh, which, of course, lasted all the way until just after the death of Cleopatra in 30 BCE, episodes 190-191, get across them. So suffice to say, with the establishment of Ptolemaic Egypt, the, uh, the Seleucid Empire to the east, uh, and, and, and many other realms besides, Alexander's legacy was, and, and still is, absolutely monumental. His life was a turning point in the history of Europe and Asia. The influence of Greek culture spread further than ever before, not just into the lands he conquered, but years later into the Roman Empire and its culture, as great Roman generals sought to emulate Alexander. The rise of Greek culture led to a period known to history as the Hellenistic period, where where Greek cultural influence and power was dominant across much of the world, all the way from Greece across to India. And uh, additionally, Alexander's focus on cultural integration brought East and West closer together than ever before. The realms that sprang up after his death would go on to shape the histories of those regions with new links to other realms, whether they were mercantile, commercial, or or actual bonds of cultural friendship. Whether it was his generals ruling in Egypt or Macedonia or Persia, or even new Indian warlords rising to fill the power vacuum he left way out East, Alexander's conquest changed the face of the earth, and quite literally too in places like Tyre. As for Alexander's remains, they were transported from Babylon back towards his native Macedon. However, en route, they were diverted to Egypt by none other, of course, than Ptolemy. Ptolemy saw to it that Alexander's remains were instead interred in Memphis before being moved years later to, altogether fittingly, Alexandria. 
And in Alexandria, the remains were placed in an opulent mausoleum, which I'm sorry to say has been lost to history. We no longer know the location of the final resting place of Alexander the Great. It's difficult to overstate the impact that this man had on history. There is a reason that even today he is considered one of the greatest and most important historical figures to have ever lived. In his short life, he forged one of the largest empires that the world has ever seen. He was completely undefeated on the battlefield. He brought about a cultural shift that would shape world history. And today, military academies still examine, explore, and pass on his strategies and tactics. It's not bad for a bloke who never even saw his 33rd birthday. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Alexander the Great and uh, the first of a couple of episodes in the coming weeks that will deal with legendarily famous figures from history. So do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I know today's episode probably wasn't as silly or as funny as the ones that you're used to, but hopefully you learned a thing or two. And again, these are figures, these are people that we've all heard of, but don't necessarily know the full story behind. So hopefully you've learned a thing or two, and hopefully uh, you found this episode at least as interesting, even not as uh, even if it wasn't as as, as funny or as silly as, as what you're used to with Half-House History. I hope at least it held your attention and held your interest, and I'd love to hear what you think. So please do get in touch. Halfhousehistory.net, of course, the contact form on the website, is the best way to tell me what you thought. And if you've got other people who should be on that list, you know, along with Julius Caesar and Isaac Newton and, and Da Vinci and all the rest of them, please let me know and I'll, uh, I'll see if I can get across them. Again, we're not going to go too deep on these figures. I don't want the length of these episodes to blow out, blow out too long, but uh, we'll get across them uh, as much as we can. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to have you com- having your company then. Of course, all the boring housekeeping stuff already talked about, halfhousehistory.net, the website, anchor.fm slash halfhousehistory to follow the show on the various uh, podcast pipes. And of course, if you want to buy some Half Us History merch, um, I'm thinking about refreshing the merch store, adding some new stuff. So if there's anything you've had your eye on, grab it before it's gone, because I think in the coming weeks, uh, let's say the coming months, I'll I'll buy myself a little more time. Uh, I may be uh, switching things up a little bit. So get across that. And of course, Patreon, patreon.com, a new round of uh, exclusive patron-only merch has uh, gone out to raucous approval. The only feedback I've got has been uh, has been positive, which means one of two things: either the merch is great and everyone loves it, or people are too polite to say that it sucks. So either way, I don't care. That money shows up in my bank account all the same. Go and get some merch up here if you feel like it. Patreon.com/slash/halfhousehistory. And a big thank you to all of the patrons who keep this show going. I mean, I mentioned. I have to say. It has been tough making this podcast in the past couple of weeks, and one of the biggest reasons that this podcast has survived, it's kept going, is of course because there are those patrons there, a spur to my flank, making sure these episodes come out more or less on time each week, more or less. Anyway, thanks for being with me for another episode of Half-Hour History. Looking forward to your company again next week when we get across another legendary figure from history. But until then, leaving you with a question, of course, posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Look a Loser, who asks, how come Caesar got a salad? And Alexander didn't. <laughs>